during the past several days, I've been said I'm a Republican in name only. And if I, I think the main question is, does he and others who said that, did they really mean it? And if they really meant it, then I've got to go through some real evaluation. That's former Governor Pat McCrory on election night. He refused to support Ted Budd after being so soundly defeated in their Republican U.S. Senate primary. I'm Steve Harrison. On this episode of Inside Politics, Election 2022, we discuss primary election results and look aheads at the general election in the U.S. Senate race and for Charlotte City Council. Charlotte City Council member Julie Isa will join us. She's leaving office this year after seven years on council. The last five is Mayor Pro Tem. Today she'll serve as a political analyst and give some insight on the challenges that await city council. Everybody is afraid to talk to each other anymore and have a good dialogue about things that we might disagree on. You know, I think governing is happens too often on social media and it shouldn't. And journalist Mary C. Curtis of Roll Call joins us to discuss the U.S. Senate race, both Ted Budd's easy victory over Pat McCrory and what's to come in his race between him and Democratic nominee Sherry Beasley. So far, she seems to be running in that lane of I'm going to bring unity, I'm going to bring peace. And I'm not sure that's the tenor right now. Uh, I think the base of both parties want fighters. Before we get to those segments, I'm joined by former Charlotte Observer reporters, Tim Funk and Jim Morrill. Hey, guys. Hey, how are you? Hey. So Tuesday night, primary night, what was y'all's what was y'all's reaction? Well, uh, locally, um, I think the Democrats dodged a bullet when Patrick Cannon uh, failed to make the cut. Uh, I think pr- Republicans saw an opportunity in making him a target and uh, maybe winning one or two of those at large seats that they haven't won since 2009. Yeah, I think uh, I think Republicans uh, were hoping that Patrick Cannon would win. And I would think they were hoping that there would be a runoff in the U.S. Senate race, which would have brought more Republicans out to vote in Charlotte. Uh, And now you don't have either of those things. So uh, I think that's probably good for the Democrats. Um, I was surprised that Larkin Eggleston uh, finished out of the money. I thought, you know, he had more money than uh, anybody else in the race, I believe. And, and uh, you know, he finished fifth, right, uh, for fifth, four seats. Right. Yeah. Patrick Cannon was sixth, Larkin was fifth, and in the top four advance. Also, we have to talk briefly about what happened in the 11th District in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Madison Cawthorn lost just barely to State Senator Chuck Edwards. But there's been so much talk, I think, over the last six years of, you know, accountability and Will voters hold politicians uh, accountable for things they say and inflammatory statements they make? And that happened in this case. It, it's hard to say what was the tipping point in that race. Like what where at what point did Madison Cawthorn go too far? But he clearly did. And I think he had a lot of baggage. You could say that a lot of things went too far. But I think the thing that probably hurt him the most from what I hear is when he said he was going to run in the in in the district that included part of Charlotte, Mecklenburg County. Because he said some things about the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, fellow Republican who had planned to run in that race. And then he went back kind of with his tail between his legs back to his own district after the districts were changed around. And by that time, more Republicans had already filed for his seat. So I think he made enemies all over on that one move. And I'm not sure a lot of them would have filed uh, if he had stayed where, you know, where he represented his district. Because you, you don't usually run against the incumbent uh, congressman. But, uh, you know, he was apparently never there. I think his eyes were on national fame and 
you know, getting on social media. And I think the people of Western North Carolina finally said, hey, what about us? You know, what about my Social Security check? You know, I mean, we brought you to the dance, so we want you to. Uh, yeah, he was closing offices here. in, in yeah. the district. I think just as an aside, I'll, I'll put in a plug for um, the, the best story I read about the race and about Madison Cawthorn was in Politico just a, about a week before the election that Michael Cruz did. Uh, it was really good. It, yeah. it, it kind of like painted this. Um, a lot of the national stories about Cawthorn are kind of this like laundry list of his transgressions. And then you stick a microphone in front of a few voters and that's that. And and this this story in Politico kind of went back to trace back to his accident that left him paralyzed. And I think really got inside his head about this tragedy. And anyway, it was just really great read. And I think the 11th district race of Madison Cawthorn probably got the most national attention. But the biggest race, of course, was the Republican primary for U.S. Senate, where Ted Budd easily defeated Pat McCrory. So let's get to it with our first guest. Julie Eiselt has been an at-large member of Charlotte City Council for seven years. She did not run for re-election this year. Today, she joins us on Inside Politics to provide some analysis of the primary election results and give some insight into city council politics. Julie, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Steve. Um, So first question on Tuesday night when you saw the results, were you happy to have sat this one out? Oh, yes, I was. (laughs) Campaigning is really hard. It's a lot of work. And I could see how fatigued all of my colleagues are and were coming up leading up to Tuesday. If you had been on the ballot Tuesday, do you think you would have you would have won or would you have finished fifth? Um, Well, that's a good question, because I usually finish third or fourth in the primary. And then I do well. I always finished first in the general. That's a good question, but and I think I know where you're leading with that, and there is a key difference between somebody who lost and how I would have done. So I guess let's let me back up for a minute and kind of set the table for our listeners. There are four city council at large seats. The Democratic primary um, has decided all of these going back to 2011. Finishing first on Tuesday was Braxton Winston. Finishing second was Dimple Ajmira. Then Luana Slack Mayfield and James Mitchell. Larkin Eggleston was fifth out of the money and Patrick Cannon was sixth. So, right, when you said, I think, you know, where you're going with this, Larkin Eggleston finished fifth. Um, and you talked about key differences between yourself and him. Can you kind of expand on that? Well, I guess the biggest difference is that women won this year. So in every single race on city council that had a woman running, a woman won, including at large. So you had two women and two men, both women running at large won. And in every one of the seats that had a race, of course, Ed Driggs and District 7 didn't have a race. Uh, District 6 is undecided. But in the other five districts, a woman won. That makes a difference. So what about I want to ask about that, because I hear that from political consultants and you know, politicians as well, that at local politics, there's a tremendous advantage to being a female candidate on the ballot. But of course, that's not true when you get to the national level. There's still a glass ceiling. But what is the difference? What, why is that a plus locally that it's not nationally? I don't know, but I have noticed that. And I think this year in particular, women's issues like Roe v. Wade have not helped necessarily at the national level versus at the local level. The only thing that I can really think of is when you talk about local races, people know the candidates. They have an opportunity 
to be very proximate with candidates and get to know who they are versus, you know, we don't have staff necessarily that that stop you from meeting with your congressman or your your state senators. I think maybe that's a big part of it. When you get to know a woman and to see what what she can do, she can get elected. And I guess, I mean, one possibility is that at the national level, there is still this idea of national security being an important component of the job. I mean, is there still this bias perhaps toward, well, that only a man can do this job? And when that's off the table at a local election, people then kind of vote on people they know and they feel comfortable with? I mean, I'm just spitballing it here. Well, it could also be that it is harder for women. Women are typically the ones that are responsible for the family unit, right? It is harder for a woman to leave every day and you know go up to Raleigh or leave every week and go to Raleigh or leave every week and go to Washington, D.C. Here, we've shown that mothers can serve very well as city council members. Our mayor is a mother and a grandmother. She was caring for her grandchildren during COVID when she needed to. You know, Dimple is a new mother and she was able to campaign and serve throughout. And I'm not sure that is easier when you're serving at the state or federal level. And Julie, we talked about this earlier in the week. Your last election was in 2019. You finished fourth in the Democratic primary. And then, as you said earlier, when the general election comes, you vaulted up to first. But fourth is, you know, right on the edge of of Mm -hmm. not making it. I look back at that 2019 primary and it was a really unusual race because on the ballot at the same time was the ninth congressional district race, Dan McCready and Dan Bishop. And it really drove turnout that year. Turnout was 22 percent. It was 14 percent on Tuesday. Um, South Charlotte voted especially in great numbers because they were in that district. Um, kind of a two-part question. Do you think that kind of like, you know, helped you finish fourth 2000, in 2019? And in 2022, with that race not on the ballot, did that ultimately, you know, hurt Larkin Eggleston and keep him out of advancing? I didn't look at the precinct numbers for Larkin for South Charlotte. Maybe you have, but I don't, you know, that's easy to answer by looking at where his votes were in South Charlotte, it it did help me because my base has been South Charlotte. You know, you can, a race can be thrown when any one person gets into the race, as we know. So you have a lot of factors like that. Not, none of them are completely decisive in terms of success, but I also got into the race late in 2019 because I was looking at running at first state treasurer. And at the time I really didn't think I was going to run at large again. And ultimately decided not to run for state treasurer. Uh, and so I, I did start my race late. And I do think that hurt me. I was I had been third <laughs> the first two times I dropped to fourth. So I'm not sure how much it hurt me. But, you know, ultimately, um, it's about the general election, but you got to squeak through in the primary. And uh, in this race, Patrick Cannon came back, former Mayor Patrick Cannon. He had the endorsement of the Black Political Caucus, ended up finishing a distant sixth. Uh, was not close at all to to the top four. Were you surprised? Did you think he had a good chance of, uh, of making it? I certainly think he had a chance. I mean, having the BPC endorsement carries weight. I've won without it a couple times, but it, it definitely, again, that's that bump sometimes that you need to get over the, the finish line. Larkin lost that endorsement by two votes. You know, if he had won the endorsement, would it have made a difference? I, I'm not really sure because he still would have had to beat James Mitchell. I want to go back and ask about Patrick Cannon, why he didn't win. Do you think it was solely because, you know, that he'd served time in prison or or were there other factors? 
No, I think that probably was it. You know, I didn't serve with Patrick. Just from what I heard from people, everybody deserves a second chance, but not maybe necessarily to do the same job again. You know, if you, a doctor gets fired from malpractice, you might not want to go back to that doctor is what I'm saying. So I heard that a lot. And I think that's probably what it was. Braxton Winston finished first in the voting. Braxton does very well in the African-American community. But I've looked at the precinct by precinct results. Braxton gets a lot of votes through the entire city, Crescent and Wedge. Why is he so popular? What has he done well? I think one thing that Braxton does, what he speaks to is a younger population. I think that people look, you know, wherever I go, and we have children that have been at the same school. So, you know, we know a lot of people in common. Wherever I go, people just feel like, um, especially younger people, feel like they can see themselves in Braxton. And he didn't come up through the traditional political ranks. He pushes back. He's outspoken. I think that speaks to a lot of people. I'm not comparing him at all to polarizing figures that we see. But when you talk about, uh, well, I'm not even mentioning names in the same sentence, but certain candidates that you say, how could you vote for them? Their voters say, because nobody else is paying attention to us, right? So there's always a faction of people out there that feel like, they don't see themselves up at the dais and people look at Braxton. They read what he says. They follow him and they say, I see myself in him. I want to talk about what the new city council will look like. Let's assume that all four Democrats who won in the primary, the, Dem- the at-large seats in the primary will ultimately win in the general election, which has happened for the last 11 years. Does this council shift a little bit to the left or is it too soon to say? I don't think it does, honestly. I mean, I really sort of taken a look at each district. I know, I know Dante. I've known her for a while. I don't know Marjorie as well, but from what I've heard about Marjorie, those are the two candidates that will be new that are for sure in. Uh, the other, you know, question mark then of course is district six. And I, I do know Stephanie. So I don't think that you are going to see a major shift to the left based on coalition building. And that's the key is that what council is all about is the ability to get six votes, the ability to put a coalition together that can pass policies. So you can have activists on your council that are very vocal about certain things, but if they don't have five other people lined up behind them to support what they want to do, it's not going anywhere. So I don't, you know, I don't worry about that as much. What I worry about is when we can't pass good policy with people willing to work together in advance of going out to the dais and taking a vote. It's so critical. And I hope that all the new people understand how important it is that you work with your colleagues in advance to come up with an answer, whether whatever it is, come up with an answer before you go out to the dais. I I should have started the program asking you this, but why did you decide not to run again? Uh, Obviously, long hours, it's a lot of work, but was that it or was there more to it? It's changed. It's definitely changed. It's become politics has become very, very toxic. And it used to be we were sort of insulated from that at the local level, but that's not really the case anymore. I love the work. I love working on public policy. I'd be happy to do it in the background as well. I don't feel the need to to be elected. And when you run these campaigns every two years, which I think is bonkers, it's a lot of money. You're spending candidates all of a sudden turn into some of them, something that they're not when they're not campaigning. And there's too much focus on campaigning. So I, I just knew I was done. 
I didn't need to look to run for something else. I just, when you know you're done, you're done. You, you talked about the council being toxic. What exactly were you referring to? Now, there were some feuds between Republican Tariq Bakari and other council members. No, I, or are you I talking mean about the public in- too, in general. And the public is just, it's so toxic. Social media, people are afraid to post anything anymore for fear of just getting attacked by people who don't even know you and what you stand for. And after a while, if you really did this because you want to give to your community and you want to serve your community, which is all, that's the reason I did. I, you know, I was a crime victim and I went into it not because I wanted to be a politician, but I wanted to make a difference. And then people just, the minute you're elected, you go from, yes, you need to represent us to your sort of the, you know, the problem. <laughs> and, and after seven years, I just felt like I'm kind of done with that. I'm ready to do something different. You just said not from inside council, but from outside council. Um, are you referring to one of the things that you had an ethics complaint filed against you uh, by, I believe, Karim Mack of the NAACP that uh, was ultimately dismissed? Is that the kind of thing that you're referring to? All sorts of things. Yeah, internally has changed as well. I think before COVID especially, we used to all be on the 15th floor on Mondays and we would talk about zoning cases. We would talk about policy issues and we really had more of a relationship amongst us that changed with COVID that just doesn't happen anymore. We've elected younger people that have jobs and young families. They're not in the office as much. Um, Some of them would vote to completely go virtual if they could. And I just don't think that's really, that's not what I signed up for. Yeah. There've been a number of things publicly it's just when people get a megaphone on social media, and we see this throughout, you know, no, everybody is afraid to talk to each other anymore and have a good dialogue about things that we might disagree on. It's just, it's gotten really tough to do that. You know, I think governing is happens too often on social media and it shouldn't. Well, Julie, thank you so much for joining us on the show and, uh, and good luck. Thanks again. Thanks, Steve. So that was Julie Eiselt, um, at-large council member who would be rotating off city council this summer. What do you guys think? I thought Julie spoke pretty candidly about some of the challenges of serving uh, in this day and age. Yeah, and I think she made a good point uh, about how women do well, too. She said the only two women who are running at large, for example, both Juan Dimple Eshmera and Lawana Mayfield, You know, and that only makes sense when you consider that most of the voters are women. Women always make up 55 or so percent of the of the electorate on any given day. She decided not to run again. I think she might have had a pretty good shot at it. Incumbents seem to do pretty well Tuesday night, uh, at least in Charlotte. Uh, The mayor, the city council, uh, sheriff, district attorney. At a time when voters are really in a bad mood, I was surprised at the failure of newcomers and fresh faces to break through. And I wonder what that means for this full slate of fresh faced newcomer Republicans who are trying to, you know, win at large Charlotte city council seats for the first time since 2009. I mean, you did have some uh, new, new faces, but they were old faces like Arthur Griffin who came back. He was on the school board and then he was elected the Mecklenburg County commissioners, uh, you know, comebacks for uh, Lawana Mayfield and, and James Mitchell. So uh, she might have done pretty well, although the Black Political Caucus did pretty well, too. And uh, I think Larkin Eggleston probably would have won if he'd gotten that endorsement. You know, I think it was interesting, too. You asked Julie about why she's leaving, and she talked about the toxic toxic environment, uh, an environment that's getting more toxic and more 
uncomfortable for people like her in office. Uh, a lot of that has to do with social media and the kind of stuff that, that you see, and you certainly see it uh, with the schools as well as city council. Um, you know, and the fact that it's been a pandemic and they had to have virtual meetings for two years. So they didn't get together like they have always gotten together to work things out. And when you're in a virtual meeting, whether it's at your workplace or wherever it is, and the person you used to sit next to is now just a little box on the screen, it just dehumanizes them. I think it's just inevitable. I mean, you know, just it's just everyone's just on slightly better behavior when you are in the same room with people yeah. and have to interact. And it, I think that does does impact things. And after this election, I think this summer, you know, I think the Democrats will probably again have a nine two advantage. Uh, I think there'll be more calls to switch to nonpartisan a nonpartisan election as other cities do. That was a recommendation of a task force. The city council ended up incorporating a lot of the recommendations higher pay. They'd like to do four-year terms, but there is no interest in going to nonpartisan because it, it's an advantage if you're a Democrat, as they are. So, But I, I do think that we'll, we'll start hearing a little bit more talk about that again. You know, and it's, back to the toxic environment, I think it's not just on city council. Um, you see this all over. You see that with the Mecklenburg County Commission and, and their dealings with the school board for the last year or so. You see it on the school board. Um, I think it's just a national thing that's, that you see in Charlotte, too. Yeah, I think there's a I've always thought there was a bit of a it's a bit overrated in a way to talk about uh, boards or commissions needing to, quote, get along. Right. I mean, I, I think there's sometimes there's this idea of, of of people being upset at friction and differences over policy and, and, and challenges and in, in getting six votes. But to your point, Jim, there's there is like a a, a, a line between squabbling over policy and, and like you said some of the back and forth we saw over over schools last summer between george dunlap the county commission chair and ernest winston election night in north carolina's u.s senate race came to a predictable outcome former state supreme court justice sherry beasley cruised to victory in the democratic primary and congressman ted budd easily defeated former governor pat mccrory Bud was complimentary of McCrory on election night. Governor Pat McCrory, I thank you for your service to our state as governor and for your time as mayor of Charlotte. You made Charlotte better and you made North Carolina better. So thank you. But McCrory didn't exactly return the favor. He refused to endorse Bud that night and questioned the direction of the Republican Party. I hope we see some honesty about some leaders in our party that maybe don't have the character or temperament to lead our party in the future. And we need to be honest about that. As I said, write policies, but maybe we need to look for other people with better temperament and policy and values. Joining me to discuss that outcome and the general election race between Beasley and Bud is Mary C. Curtis. She's a columnist for RollCall.com and host of the podcast Equal Time. Welcome, Mary. Good to see you again and talk with you, Jim. <laughs> I want to look ahead uh, to the fall, but let's look at what happened in the primary. Pat McCrory is a former governor and a longtime mayor of Charlotte. He only got 25 percent of the Republican vote. Were you surprised that he did as badly as he did? Not really, because the Republican Party is Trump's party now. Even I think if Trump weren't, to, weren't going to run again in 2024, Trumpism is here to stay. And once Trump, the former president, endorsed Ted Budd, I think that that meant that he was, of course, going to sprint ahead here in North Carolina. We don't know what's going to happen in the general, but definitely in the 
Republican Party. Uh, and it's interesting because Pat McCrory, if he had gotten Trump's endorsement, I think his sentiments about taking a look at leadership would be a little bit different right now. He wasn't very happy on primary night for sure. He compared, and later he compared the treatment that he got from Bud and the Club for Growth that spent over $11 million against him to a form of Republican McCarthyism. That's pretty strong language, but does he have a point? And do you think there's room for people like McCrory in today's Republican Party? Well, I think that, of course, feeling pretty wounded because he had been, you know, a great name, uh, well known, at least in North Carolina. And I think in the beginning, he was pulling ahead in the polls until that endorsement. Um, but there are certain, um, I think, for the base of the Republican Party, you see that, of course, Ted Budd voted not to certify the election of Joe Biden. Uh, and right now it's become an article of faith that you do have to question the results of the 2020 election. We see people who even in the past, candidates who have said, yes, Joe Biden is the president, kind of pulling back on that. And to see uh, what the Republican Party, uh, the direction of the Republican Party, just look and see rock ribbed uh, conservative Representative Liz Cheney, number three, uh, was in the House leadership, was then really deposed when she wanted to question uh, the insurrection on January 6th, the behavior of the former president. And in her place is Elise Stefanik uh, of New York, who is all in for Trump. She had basically been thought of as a moderate previously, but now she not only is uh, you know, really all in for Trumpism, but has been criticized for using language that is similar in some ways to the replacement conspiracy language uh, that we see, of course, is rising. Polls show that a third of Americans and close to half of Republicans feel there is some truth in that. Um, and we see, of course, that that language was in the screed of the uh, accused killer in, in Buffalo. So, you know, right now, it's interesting to see the direction of the party, but it's looking ahead to the general election. You can see that besides issues like the economy and inflation, that more and more we'll be talking about democracy being on the ballot. Uh, you talked about Buffalo, and, and let's talk about the general election. Uh, Beasley is a historic candidate. She's the first Black woman nominated for the U.S. Senate in North Carolina. Do you think after Buffalo that race will be an issue in this race? Well, it will be interesting. It'll depend on the kind of campaign that the both candidates run. We saw it right after that Bud is going straight at Beasley with a lot of uh, accusations, and I really don't want to repeat them, uh, on her judicial record and kind of personal. Um, and it's going to be already running the offensive, and already the Beasley campaign has released a defensive kind of ad protecting her. Now she is a historic candidate, but so far she seems to be running in that lane of I'm gonna bring unity, I'm gonna bring peace. And I'm not sure that's the tenor right now. Uh, I think the base of both parties want fighters. Uh, we saw how in Pennsylvania, the, uh, the sort of mid moderate uh, can traditional democratic candidate, Connor Lamb, lost to uh, the Lieutenant Governor, John Fetterman, who is more, uh, he's just, just more straightforward, tougher seemingly, and is really going right at it. And that seems to be the kind of candidate that the base of the parties want. The, the Republicans want 
fighters, folks who are aligned with Trump, and the Democrats want people who are going to push back at that. So it'll be interesting to see to me how uh, Sherry Beasley runs that campaign. Uh, and of course, we know as an African-American woman, as a historic candidate, uh, you know, I'm a Black woman myself, firsts are always under the microscope, and you really have to walk a tightrope. We saw it with Barack Obama as the first uh, Black president. He had to be, you know, just such a straight arrow when you compare his background to the background of the, the next president, Donald Trump. And so as this candidate running in North Carolina, which is still, of course, a Southern state, um, it will be interesting to see how much on the offensive that she will go, because she will be needing to not just appeal across different boundaries, but to excite the base, to excite minority voters, to ex excite those suburbanites, um, and how much she is going to go after uh, the Republican candidate on the basis of his rather pugilistic style, you know, and... Yeah. And I do think after Buffalo, people are thinking about this. You, uh, you know, my latest column in Roll Call talks about, uh, are we gonna be a unified country? Are people gonna be optimistic about this American experiment when we do see these conspiracy theories echoed not just on the fringes anymore, but also in mainstream politics? We'll see how much you know, she goes at that and how much Ted Budd leans into that. I think it's up to the media too to ask tough questions of all the candidates. You know, uh, you made a good point about moderate candidates and Connor Lamb and what happens to them often. You know, Sherry Beasley did not have a competitive primary after Jeff Jackson dropped out and she's only running judicial races. How do you think she'll do in a more bare knuckles brawl that this Senate race is going to be? Well, we'll have to see how she does. I'm not going to, you know, her personality is is that measured judicial personality. But already, as I said, you've seen these kinds of attacks and the language that's being thrown around that is, is very personal. Um, it, it's interesting. It's not just uh, we disagree on different issues. It's that the other person is an accident, ex, existential threat. And uh, this isn't her wheelhouse, but you know, November is a bit away. And so we'll see how she operates and uh, if she gets more comfortable in the more bare-knuckle style. In 2008, when Barack Obama was running, we saw a record black turnout in North Carolina. I think 72% of African-American voters came to the polls that, that year, and, and Obama carried the state. Do you think they can turn out in those same numbers for Sherry Beasley? Well, we'll see. And we saw in Georgia how the efforts of voting rights activists, uh, Fair Fight, uh, Latasha Brown, Stacey Abrams and others, uh, and say Ufat and others, really pushed to get uh, Black voters registered, to get them out, to get all voters, you know, to try to increase the uh, electorate and to diversify the electorate. We saw some states come in with restrictive voting laws that some voting rights activists thought uh, they were there to restrict the vote. So in North Carolina, We'll see if there will be similar efforts, grassroots efforts to register and get people out. So you know, I think that will definitely be the hope to excite uh, the base to get Black voters out, not just in the cities, but in the more rural areas, to make people feel that there is something at stake. We also have, I think, hovering over everything, uh, this sense of democracy. We have, uh, I'll be honest, a party that's saying that the 2020 election 
was rigged when we know that it that's not true it was fair and but that's become an article of faith to say um we've also seen the rise of basically evangelicals flexing their political muscle and being all in for trump and and some of uh, his theories and conspiracy theories so i think there's so much in the mix you know as journalists we need to rise up to really interrogate the candidates about how they feel on every single one of these issues and not treat it like it's business as usual. Well, Ted Budd wasn't very available to the media during the primary. We'll see if that changes. You know, as Well, that's another thing. Will will the public demand this? We've seen that the media is an enemy for some candidates and they make it a point of pride of not showing up to debates and banking on their base to go along and saying, "Well, that's just, you know, the corrupt media." And and well, we'll see how that plays. Because it's kind of interesting, North Carolina is not Texas. It's it's different, but how different? Is it really a purple state? And you know, we're so different county to county, uh, and that's what makes us a battleground. That what make, makes everybody come and look at us. <laughs> you know, Mitch McConnell's got a super PAC affiliated with him, and. Uh, they've already said they're going to spend $27 million in North Carolina on the race. That's a lot of money. Do you think Sherry Beasley's supporters would have the kind of resources to match that? Well, I think that'll be something interesting to take a look at. How much money will be coming in on the Democratic side? And at any point, will they be shifting money to races? You, know, you can always tell, does the party think that this is a race they can win? And of course, you know, then we, they shift resources. Uh, accordingly. So that'll be something to keep an eye on. This is very crucial. The, the, the Senate is just split right down the middle. And who controls the Senate coming up really will have a big effect on how much President Biden can get. Uh, past, we already see so much stall because of the filibuster, but what can he get done? Uh, if he can get any judges, <laughs> we see that it's not much talked about, but he has diversified the federal judiciary. What will happen if another Supreme Court uh, seat opens up? I think uh, if the Republicans control the Senate, there's a question that they would even get a hearing. We saw what happened with uh, Merrick Garland and, and President Obama. So this is incredibly important. And Mitch McConnell can taste it to become, he doesn't like being Senate Minority Leader. And his path to being in the majority does come through, where else? North Carolina. Hey, Mary, thank you very much for joining us. I'm sure we'll have more times to talk uh, before November, so we'll, we'll be talking to you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So that was journalist Mary C. Curtis of Roll Call, who talked about the U.S. Senate race. Um, Jim and Tim, let's go back to Tuesday night when the results started coming in. I assume you guys were hunched over at your laptops or desktops, <laughs> and uh, I was at Selwyn Pub with McCrory's, you can't call it a party, I guess, but his event, I would say it was a little sad in a way that, you know, it wasn't a big group of people they knew going in, they were going to lose. So they had a small space, did not plan for anything big. McCrory, you know, was asked several times about endorsing Bud. It's important to note he didn't do it that night, but he did leave the door open for doing it. He talked about, he was very hurt that he was called a Republican in name only, and then said, it was a very strange answer. Answer, He said, well, if they really meant it, that I'm a rhino, then I have to evaluate whether 
I will endorse. And then he said, well, but if it was just in the spirit of the campaign and they didn't really mean it, then, well, it's okay. I thought it was kind of strange. I think we all know that Pat McCroy doesn't have the thickest skin in the game. And other Republicans have been called rhinos, too. I think Tom Tillis was called a rhino last year. Um, It's just a thing kind of thing that happens in a campaign. Yeah, you're going to be called, unless you're the kind of far right group of the party, Dan Bishop may not be called a rhino, but a lot of other Republicans will be at one time or another. It's especially humbling, I think, when you've been governor, you've been a popular mayor of Charlotte, and you're defeated crushingly again by a congressman who has a pretty low-key reputation and was really – if you had asked most North Carolinians a few months ago, who's Ted Budd, they would have – they wouldn't know what you're talking about. Now they know him simply as Trump's horse in the U.S. Senate race. I don't think they know much else about him. And it'll be interesting to see if the Democrats actually try to define him as the guy on January 6th and the big lie and uh, Roe v. Wade, or if they let him skate by like Mary was talking about. Because I think the Republicans have already begun defining Sherry Beasley as soft on crime and the most radical. And and the Democrats need to... Uh, not come to a knife fight with a pen or something, I mean, or a judicial gavel. Gavel. Back in the fall, Ted Budd did an interview with Associated Press on video where he was asked about the 2020 election. And he said, you know, that Joe Biden is a legitimate president, that he did receive more votes than Donald Trump. So in a way, I don't want to say that ends it. That's that's too being too simplistic. But he's answered some of those questions. But Tim, to your point, there's still a lot of material Uh, left for the Democrats to work with probably around January 6th. And I think looking forward to November, um, Mary talked about what Democrats want from Sherry Beasley being the kind of candidate to be aggressive and bring the fight to the Republicans. You know, I will be curious to see, I kind of have a personal view that a lot of these elections, kind of the cake is kind of baked somewhere around Labor Day in terms of how people feel about the country. And then there's very little room after that to, I mean, you can make changes and you can win voters, but so much of it is the narrative is kind of set by September. I don't know if you or you guys agree or not. I think Mary made a good point, too, about, um, you know, the kind of Democratic candidates that do well. You know, we saw this in Pennsylvania where the moderate candidate lost, moderate candidate for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. You know, Sherry Beasley is a moderate, I think. She's called herself a liberal in the past, but I don't think anybody would uh, accuse her of being a flaming liberal, except I'm sure we'll see ads like that. But but she's not. But at the same time, I don't know that that fires up her, her base, her constituency like she would need. Her ads so far have been, you know, I'm just a normal person like you and I'm going to fight for you. But there's no emotion there. And I just, you know, I wonder if the National Democrats are going to put money here because they're obviously trying to flip Pennsylvania Democrat and keep their seats in Georgia, New Hampshire, Arizona, and Nevada. North Carolina may be an afterthought unless she gets upset a a little bit, I think. And that's a wrap for the 2022 North Carolina primary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside Politics. For Jim Morrill and Tim Funk, I'm Steve Harrison. Inside Politics Election 2022 is a production of WFAE. (laughs) 